Christine Kharif is a business development manager at DLF Attorneys at Law Ukraine. Christine writes eloquently and passionately about Ukraine on LinkedIn and Twitter, exposing Russian falsehoods and advocating for Ukraine's cause. Welcome to Silicon Curtain Podcast. If you enjoy the material we create, then please like and subscribe to help boost the popularity of our videos in YouTube. It will help other people find the fantastic speakers that we feature. And please do also consider becoming a patron to help support the work that the channel does. Christine, this is a huge pleasure. I've followed you on LinkedIn for, well, really since the start of the war. You've been incredibly active there and you've been an invaluable source of insight and information. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Compared to your other guests on the podcast, I feel a bit less, maybe, I don't know, uh, important, significant, but it's an honor to be here. Absolutely not. Ukrainian voice, maybe. No, absolutely not. I mean, people on the channel are really judged by what they write and what they say and the quality of their opinions. Uh, and in that respect, you are second to none. Uh, you're an invaluable source for many of the people who are following this war. Um, so you're absolutely in no way secondary to anybody else in the channel. Um, and I think one of the most interesting comments you made recently, and it's in relation to the events last week, which I think are still extremely raw and very difficult to discuss, but you said it feels like we're going back to the USSR, that this Russian terrorism, the callous indifference shown towards life, is kind of reminiscent of Chernobyl. It's reminiscent of uh, the sort of terrible events uh, that took place throughout the Soviet Union's history, including the Holodomor, the deportations and so on. Just this sheer brutality and the scale of it. Um, so... I'd love to I'd love for you to sort of unpack that thought and the kind of emotions that it that it's stimulating. Well, for me, this thought came um, because of the more because of the cover up. Like in in the Soviet Union, uh, everything always went according to plan. Nothing ever went wrong, and this this includes Chernobyl, a tragedy, yeah, as we know. So I was I wasn't even born back then. But I know the stories and I know how uh, the, the tragedy happened on the 20, 26th of April. And on the 1st of May, uh, people who had no idea what happened, people in Kiev region, they, they had to join those parades for the Labor Day with their kids because this, because school kids, uh, they participate in this, like uh, they, they, they are never asked, that's, that's just how it is. And they brought outside in the sun. It was very sunny in those days. And so they had no idea what risks they, they were exposed to. And there was a massive cover-up. And yes, there's, there's no regard to, uh, to, to victims, to casualties, because in, in the Soviet Union, uh, people, it's just, they are a very cheap commodity. You can always replace them. Yeah, and uh, it was true in, in the Soviet era. But now I think uh, uh, what Putin doesn't take into account, or maybe he doesn't want to see this, is that this has changed. And Russia is no Soviet Union. And no, they don't have unlimited uh, raw materials and human resources. They don't have that, but they still act as if they do. And yeah, they don't care for victims. Those are just numbers, you know, as, as we know the famous saying that one death is a tragedy and millions of deaths is just statistics. And if you can cover them up and no one will find out, then who cares about, about the flooding in Kahoka? 
there's like we, we've seen the widow, you know, of this uh, cycle, the self-appointed administrator uh, saying that there's no no sign of high water. And and in the background, you can see the water level rising and flooding the, the administration building. And this is just surreal. And it's like, I don't know, Orwellian. <laughs> so, yeah, and that, that's why it just reminded me of this, uh, of the massive cover-ups in, in the USSR. I mean, not to trivialize it in any way, because we'll come on to the serious implications in a minute, but the sight of that governor in military uniform standing at a window saying that him and his colleagues are driven to work no problem, and they've got five meters of water literally out of the window. I mean, that's like a living meme. Um, I mean, propaganda in the Soviet Union had a serious purpose, and that was to get people to believe in an idea and a concept. Propaganda now just seems to simply be about sowing confusion and lies. And some of it, as, as, as you say in this particular clip, is particularly clumsy and ineffective. Yeah, well, there's another thing that is different in our times is that we have internet. Yeah, it was much easier to hide everything, to show everything under the rock in the Soviet times. We, they don't have this luxury anymore because we can see, we can basically follow the events live in most cases because people have smartphones and they can record everything. And so this is not that easily done any longer. That's why we have those memes. That's why we have uh, silly, uh, I don't know, some some uh, fails when they, when they say one thing and on record and the video shows a different thing. And so they are caught lying live, essentially. And Another it doesn't work. Yeah, sorry. Another big difference, uh, of course, is that the Soviet Union was not a rule of law society. Um, you know, if you did something the state didn't like or something happened to you and it wasn't really on the state's agenda, you had no means to gain restitution. Uh, there was no uh, sense of justice. And it seems that since the period uh, since 1991 ukrainian independence ukraine has been steadily moving away from that lack of rule of law and starting to build the infrastructure of civic society um you know we we won't claim that it's perfect uh we're not we're not into sort of propaganda here um and i don't think anyone who supports ukraine has ever claimed it is perfect but it is on the route to uh, dramatically changing, if you compare where it was to 30 years ago, Russia seems to have not actually made much progress towards being or becoming a rule of law society. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that in the USSR, we had this, or they had this, uh, luckily, I don't remember much, uh, the might makes right policy approach yeah, to everything, to the governance. And it's still, it's still the case in Russia. It's more the case. So in, in the beginning, uh, after the Soviet Union fell, uh, they had some, some, I don't know, budding democracy, some sprouts, but they lost it all. And now they are back to this might makes right. You have power, you decide what's law, what's not law, and who is over the law. And Ukraine, yeah, you're right. I, I, I strongly agree with that. We are not perfect. We are far from perfect. But that's why we wanted to join institutions, international institutions, and become part, a part of the EU, for example, because we felt that uh, this will help expedient this, this process and help us get there faster. We have a corrupt system that has to be broken down. 
but it's hard to break down a system when you don't have an alternative, right? It's it, it, you have to put something in place of this broken system. You have to replace it with something and not just uh, demolish everything and then let, be left without nothing. And so this is this is why we, we strive to be part of the, the European community. Yes, it's not perfect either, uh, but we can we can uh, use the best practices uh, to build our own state, a better state with the rule of law. And yeah, for, for us, the revolution of dignity, as you mentioned, it was about the rule of law. So when, when we saw those students uh, beaten up, um, and we saw that we are not going to, to have an agreement, association agreement with the European Union. It was as if they were trying to, to deprive us of, uh, of this uh, right to live in a country uh, that, uh, that um, uh, respects laws. And that was the, our main concern. And that's why we took to the streets. And I don't know, um, you know, how young you were when that when that happened. But um, it seems to have been a key awakening moment for many people. Um, they, you know, sort of took independence for granted, I think, many people, even the older generation in, in 91, and certainly those who were born into, uh, you know, the new Ukrainian Republic, assumed that, well, that's it. That's sort of, as they say, the end of history there, and there aren't going to be any problems. Um, however, the... Euromaidan or the Revolution of Dignity, I think that was the first awakening many people had, that actually this thing was fragile, it could go backwards, there could be a slide back towards that Soviet mindset, and it seems to be a key kind of catalyst that awakened many people into their activism or professional lives in building this civic society infrastructure. Uh, is that similar to you, and what are your experiences of it? Well, I think the first spark that we had was earlier in 2004, uh, the orange, this so-called orange revolution, when we just, when we said we don't want a criminal uh, to rule over Ukraine. But uh, Ukrainians tend to have this short political memory. And, and as you know, probably just in a few years, we elected that, that very person we were um, demonstrating against, which is incredible. I, I, my son once asked me, like, why did you uh, elect Yanukovych? This was crazy. I said, well, yeah, yeah, it was crazy, but that's just how it is. So that was probably the first moment, but I would say we lost our chance back then. And uh, yes, in 2014, uh, we felt that, that this might be a pivotal um, moment when we can either continue uh, on our way to a better country, um, a more civilized country, or we can fall back uh, into the USSR times with Russia. And we didn't want to be part of Russia. We didn't want to go along with Russia. And yes, it, it, and you are right. I think that we were taking um, freedom for granted and democracy. Maybe we, we became a bit, a bit, I don't know, lazy, <laughs> just like you could say about the Western world today, uh, that this is something normal and it seems as if there won't be any any other option. Yeah, there, there aren't any, but there are, there are. And we can see, we can see the rise of uh, tyranny all over the world. And now I think with Ukraine, uh, we put this in the spotlight also. So uh, the events in Ukraine are, um, they have much wider implication for the world, for the global uh, development. And if we choose to fight tyranny, on the global scale or put up with it, close, 
put a blind eye to it, you know, say that it doesn't concern me, everything is okay in my country. Uh, and one of the key methods of propaganda is to actually convince people that actually everything is the same. You know, democracy, tyranny, well, it doesn't really make much difference. You know, rule of law or not, um, you'll be living the same. It doesn't make any difference to your, your life. And it seeks to create this kind of apathy. Um, a question I've got what really comes up from the last week's events and the terrorism around the dam, which we'll keep referring back to, um, is that the Western media seem to fall into that propagandistic trap because they have this nominal idea that um you know they need to be objective they need to be completely you know um looking at both sides both sideism i think it's it's called there but that naturally in some circumstances seems to fall into the trap of accepting um propaganda narratives because the propaganda is straight out with the lies in fact, many of those lies are prepared ahead of time, especially where we suspect that the dam event was organized many weeks or even many months in advance. The lies are immediately everywhere, whereas the news media, with the two sides approach, has to wait for absolutely concrete facts before saying anything meaningful. Uh, and we see this weakness of the system of lies versus a uh, uh, sort of media really on show last week. And it's disastrous, in fact, isn't it? Well, it feels really insensitive to Ukrainians when you put the, um, put the version of the proposed by Russians, propagated by Russians, and give the same credibility to it as, as to that of Ukrainians. Uh, that that just seems extremely insensitive, and um, I think that uh, well, Timothy Snyder has addressed this very well. I I, I recommend everyone to read the, read about this. And uh, yeah, we feel misunderstood. We for us it's obvious because when you think about a crime like that, which was a crime, uh, the the perpetrator would have to have a motive and the means, and this only this this only. Uh, is true. This is only true for Russia. We didn't have the means. We didn't have the motives. What did it bring us? So how could you how could you say that we don't know? And have you have you seen uh, any examples of Ukraine doing anything similar? We have to take the, the wider context maybe into consideration. Have we seen Russia do such things? On the other hand, well, yes, we have. So yeah, and I, I think that someone put it this very well as that if someone says. Like one one person says it's raining outside and the other person says it's shining, the sun is shining outside. You don't say, well, it might be shining, the sun might be shining, or maybe it's raining, I don't know. You just stick out your head and see what what the truth is, is. If it's raining or if if the sun is shining and that's it. And there's no need to say, well, this person said the sun was shining because it's not true. This is not objective. This is giving um, giving platform, giving voice to lies and propaganda. I think as well, I wanted to call out here, I mean, I'm going to cover this later in the week and the sort of news segment that I do as well. The BBC was probably one of the worst sources I'd seen uh, in this um, event last week. On the day it happened, you had the BBC correspondent on the ground literally saying, well, this has happened, these are the consequences, but we will never know. Not that this is how we might know, he literally said, we will probably never know how this happened. Um, 
And then that was repeated by the BBC's chief political foreign correspondent, uh, Jeremy Bowen, again saying, we will probably never know what happened. This is on day one of the crisis uh, or the terrorist event. On day two, the Norwegian government released seismic data to show that a massive explosion had taken place, a single massive explosion had taken place, which corroborated many witness, eyewitness accounts that one, it was an explosion, two, it was a singular explosion. That almost immediately says, first of all, it discounts the propagandistic narrative that the dam crumbled through to age or some mysterious factors, thereby taking agency uh, and a tent away from the, the, the Russians. Secondly, a single explosion, or a single massive explosion, tells you that wasn't artillery, couldn't have been artillery, and it tells you that Ukraine had no means whatsoever to do it. It also suggests that those explosives would have had to have been placed on the dam itself. Who occupies and controls the dam? Russia does. I mean, this isn't Agatha Christie. You don't have to be Hercule Poirot to work this damn stuff out. Um, and yet, there, day one, BBC is saying, we will never know. Not, this is the kind of evidence we've got. This is the evidence we would need to make a conclusion. Not some sort of balanced and informative point of view, but quite literally a narrative that serves the propagandist, that takes any, uh, absolves the... Um, you know, those who did it from any kind of culpability. Um, so sorry, I'm going to a bit of a rant here, but do you, um, do you, do you, do you see as well in the media and uh, in the, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, places where you are active, do you see these propaganda narratives really winning last week? Well, first of all, I'm happy I didn't see that, that, that report made by a BBC correspondent because it would have made mistake for sure. I, I read one headline by Reuters, I believe, who said that Russia and Ukraine blaming each other, and that was enough to to just I, I don't know not to, not to break my mood, but to send shivers and uh, and make me feel a bit helpless and hugely disappointed, of course. So uh, yes, I can see this, and uh, as as soon as we uh, have this doubt, even a bit of doubt, a grain of doubt that's sown, Russia can use it to its advantage. And if someone so reputable as BBC says, we will never know, well, then they can speculate it still for, for years to come. And then they might use it next year or when we when we discuss reparations and everything or, or, or rebuilding costs. So yes, that, I, I think that, uh, so free speech is extremely important. And that is, that is one of the reasons we went to Maidan yeah, in 2014. But letting um, regimes like, like that, that of Putin to use this free spe speech to manipulate the media, I don't think it's acceptable. I think it's time the media learns how to discern the truth, how to, um, how to uh, prevent propaganda from seeping through the narrative, the official narratives. If they, if they could say that, let's say, it's hard to conclusively establish, yeah, we don't have the proof at the moment, but for sure, Russia had the motives and Russia had the means and the dam was built to withstand uh, a nuclear war, right, during, during the Soviet times. No, it couldn't crumble. No, it couldn't have been destroyed by, by Ukrainian artillery. We don't have such weapons. 
Had we had such weapons, the Kurdish bridge would not be existing any longer, right? And so this is how you put it. You can mention, it's okay, maybe mention the other side, but not give the equal weight to those opinions. Well, in my, that's that's how I see it. And I think John Sweeney made a good point. I know you sort of follow him uh, on, uh, on, on his comments there and his fantastic recent book. He made the point that recently there was a bridge, a far less durable structure um, that Ukraine had targeted recently uh, because it was a key point of sort of destroying Russia's capacity to use that bridge and, and, and access a, a piece of land. Now, a bridge is, is far flimsier than a giant concrete structure. And yet it took many dozens of artillery strikes uh, and even missiles to actually render that structure unusable. Um, and that is, a, a, you know, incredibly weak structure compared to a dam. So, again, consulting with experts, using a tiny bit of logic and knowledge, prior knowledge, uh, would, would tell you that, uh, you know, these propaganda narratives around the bridge crumbling are ludicrous but what shocks me is the process of it we had years of propaganda narratives being created around mh17 the uh jetliner that was shot down by a book missile system we know the propaganda methods we know what they do and how they do it so how on earth does the media fall into it now i'm going to ask you about the ukrainian media because you know ukrainian media has to be an awful lot sharper perhaps than western media because your survival depends on it. So do you see a big difference between the way these events are covered by, say, Kiev Independent and, uh, you know, the really sort of reputable, uh, incredibly sort of uh, strong Ukrainian media and and sort of equivalent Western sources? Well, yes, in this case, of course, I trust our media more. But the problem here is the outsiders will say that they are biased. And that's why we rely on international media. That's why we need them to learn. It's been a, a long time and, and it's time to learn them. Yes, as, as you've said, there are those methods and we know them. One method is just not just proposing an alternate uh, uh, version of what happened, but also maybe giving many of them. Like even in this case, they said, well, it was those were Ukrainians, but they also said it crumbled on its own. Yeah, you can see here, not one version, but already two versions. So which one was it? And their goal here is not to uh, to just uh, try to negate what is said, to reject, but but also to confuse people. And yes, Ukrainian uh, media are just, I, I guess we are immune to this, but you can always say that we are, we cannot be impartial because we are reporting events on Ukraine. And I don't think any journalist in Ukraine could ever say, well, any, I don't know, sane journalist could, could ever say that it there's a chance Ukrainians did it. Of course not. That that's that's un, unthinkable, but I think that uh, it's time for the Western media, international media, to learn from from our media as well. And there's a lot to learn. And another problem I think with the media is its short termism. It might cover a story in the heat of the moment, but then you know it drops off. So as as awful as it is to say, an event like Butcher and Derpin is the perfect event for the Western media because terrible, tragic events, but there is film footage. You can actually see it, you can show it, it's demonstrable. And the lies 
that the propagandists put out are relatively easily um, you know, dismissed with that evidence. Also, it's a terrible human tragedy, but the longer term consequences are not so great. So you can cover that story in its immediate aftermath, the tragedy, the emotion, the appalling impact in the immediate vicinity. And that's perfectly structured for the media. It's what you said earlier today. Few lives is, is an incredible tragedy. Millions of lives is not. And the um, the dam, the Karkota dam um, terrorism, this sort of fits that second one. It's difficult to get the full scale of it. It's difficult to get footage that captures the scale of it. You've got propaganda really pushing very, very hard from the outset. Um, and many of the consequences are immediate with the flooding, but some of those worst consequences are in occupied territories. So you have no footage, no eyewitness accounts uh, that you can easily get to, but also the main consequences are gonna be long-term. And what I really fear, and I'll ask you the question about this, the real fear is that the, the, the real implications of this uh, are going to be a massive impact on agriculture, uh, on industry, on the economy and ecology for many years to come. And the media is just not geared up to cover that kind of long-term unfolding tragedy, um, you know, within its sort of short-termism, uh, short snippet kind of news cycle. I think this, this might be due to the audience that we have now, maybe the short attention span and, and everything, and people, maybe they don't want to think so globally and so many years in advance. So, um, I would I would say that it's it's a bit weird when it comes to this particular tragedy in Kaholka in Kherson region because it will have global implication as well as as we know um, I don't remember 150 tons or, or something of of oil products uh, uh, spilled in, into the waters and so the the Dnipro River will, will be polluted and it will the waters will will reach the the Black Sea eventually, right? So this this is not just for Ukraine, this is the whole Black Sea region, at least. And uh, this is a, a huge catastrophe, a huge environmental risk for the planet. And as much as we worry about, about the climate change and its global implications, and we and the world seems to be ready to join, uh, to, to join efforts to fight it, somehow this is not seen as, a, as having a global impact. So it's hard for me to grasp because we we have be, we have become more globally thinking people on the one hand, yes, and on the other hand, something that's happening in Ukraine somehow it's very far away still. It still seems like very far away. Maybe it's it has to do with this being connected to Russia again, because some somehow uh, the international organizations and even activists seem to be tiptoeing around around Russia. Whenever something happens and Russia has to do with it, somehow it's it doesn't get the coverage, right? And it doesn't it's not shown um with like with the true significance of it is not um reflected in the media. And there's two words that that trigger me in particular in the media. And for me there are indicators that, that particular journalist uh is not prepared to think is not prepared to structure their report in a really sort of deep and incisive way. One of those words is escalation. So everything awful that is done to Ukraine is, it just is. Anytime Ukraine strikes back at Russia, 
it's labeled escalation. And I think people need to be aware. Any journalist that will use the word escalation um, has not thought about what's really going on. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to say they are ill-intentioned, but they may well be epically incompetent at their job or are not particularly thoughtful person. But that that's a one trigger word. The other one, of course, is uh, when they talk about a stalemate, when they talk about the fact that, uh, and, and again, this is one of the problems, when they use these words, they state it as fact. They don't state it as a complete supposition that goes against the, the evidence of 14 months of war. When they talk about the war being frozen, and Ukraine not being able to make any progress. Um, I mean, that that is in, in absolutely sort of stark uh, opposition to the facts when Ukraine was able to push Russia back from first uh, Kiev region, uh, and then Kharkiv, and then Kherson, uh, masses of evidence that actually there are periods in this mobile of extreme mobility and success. So those are two kind of trigger words. Um, have you noticed anything else in the media that that sort of makes your blood boil? Or are you, do you try to switch off when you see that kind of incompetent reporting? Well, what I wanted to say is my impression is that there are still a lot of myths about Russia, everything surrounding Russia. There are some primordial fears. And um, so it, it would seem as if some people's brains, they just like switch off when they hear Russia. They have such a deep visceral fear um, <laughs> associated with Russia that they can't think logically. They start to use their emotions and, and everything is viewed through this prism of what you said, escalation. And they, they see Ukraine fighting back and they imagine nuclear war, apparently. And their brain completely shuts down. You can't have analysis if, if your brain is in this, in this mode uh, like totally illogical mode, totally emotional, overcome your, I don't know, the lizard brain, as they say, yeah, the amygdala, and you try to protect yourself and you just think we need to avoid this at any cost. And what, yes, Ukraine suffers. Yes, they have to sacrifice, but they, they should understand that it's for the global good somehow, somehow. Of course, this is very, again, short term, because if we allow this, this um, kind of... Uh, uh, of uh, nuclear um, blackmail to go on, well, anyone can do it. And there will be more maniacs like Putin with blackmail, with, with nukes, right? To blackmail and together to achieve their goals. And so, but they don't think again, they don't think long-term. They are, they are just in this grip of fear and they stop analyzing. So maybe that explains this. And also this, this event of, uh, of the dam uh, being destroyed by Russians. Again, they don't want to trigger Russia or because they have this this nuclear baton that they can uh, this this stick that they can wave at any moment. So that's my impression. And I don't know. I, I think that maybe the lack of courage on their part, and as you said, lack of analysis and um, yeah, fear. Ukrainians are tired of being afraid. We we are no longer afraid. We've been threatened with the with the nukes for so long. We we're no longer afraid. We have to. We have to choose either we are afraid or we live our lives. And we have made this choice. It's time for the world to do the choice too. And so you mentioned uh, Timothy Schneider, who wrote an extra article. We'll put the link in here about media, uh, sort of the trap media falls into and the two scientism. And another article that came out last week, which you may not have seen, is by Peter Pomerantsev. 
And this is another aspect, I think, where not just the media, but almost everyone falls into this. And, and this is perhaps to be forgiven, because unless you are Russia's neighbour, unless you emerged from the Soviet Union or studied Russian history, in fact, even many people who study Russian history don't really understand this point, I think, um, and that is the Russian mindset. So we see an event like the Karhorka Dam, we see others, uh, atrocities, and we try to impose our own framework on them, our own sort of logic. Um, and we try to see meaning in their actions. We try to see strategy in everything they do. But what Peter Pomerantsev points out is that fundamentally, there is something far more atavistic and disturbing going on in the Russian mindset, um, uh, something masochistic in, in many ways. And then actually the dam explosion, uh, rather than trying to see sort of endless logic in there and trying to understand, well, you know, they drowned their own troops. How could they have done it? Blah, blah, blah. This could be scorched earth. This could not actually be a strategic move, or at least the strategic gains wouldn't seem to justify the action. It could just be something from envy, from the willingness and the desire to inflict pain and indeed to punish Ukraine because Ukraine won't submit to its control. I mean, you almost have to take it back to a human level and see it almost like a, a husband who's been spurned uh, and is seeking to take some kind of revenge. Uh, so I, I would like to mention this, maybe an example of how Russian soldiers behave as we know, when they uh, withdrew from uh, Kyiv region, people returned to their homes to find their feces, I'm sorry, in drawers everywhere, in closets. So there they were toilets and everything. They were withdrawing. They knew they couldn't keep this territory any longer. What did they do? They just left their feces everywhere. If they can't have it, they will at least try to spoil it for others. So I think that that's the spiteful mentality and it could be the scorched earth uh, policy, what, what happened with the dam. If we can't hold this territory, we will we will show our might. We will, we will do this just for the sheer reason that we can, that we are able to, and we will see, we will show our strength, our might, our power, and we will inflict as much damage as we can because we cannot control this land anymore. We will have to withdraw in any case later. So yes, I agree on that. I saw the article. But I, I think I haven't finished it, just started reading. But this is this general mentality. Also, I remember uh, reports, um, like uh, photographs also from Bucha and other places where on the walls there were inscriptions, who allowed you, Ukrainians or Hohols, to live like that? Who allowed you to live better than us? This is this is not okay. So they they are not trying to improve their conditions of living. Instead, they try to demolish everything, probably because it's easier, right? It's so much easier to destroy whatever is good. And then you don't, in, in comparison, you don't seem to be in such a dire state any longer. So I think that is part of the mentality. And it, it also fits in with this might makes right strategy, yeah? And my approach to life and governance. And also, uh, I, I wanted to say something, but I <laughs> just slipped. Um, uh, so uh, the, the culture of violence, yeah, you, a lot has been spoken about this lately, but it is how the society is arranged in, in, uh, in Russia. So whoever is higher, hierarchically, they have to 
towards her, they're subordinates, basically, yeah? And for them, it's okay, because that's how they, they show their, fight, their, their power. They don't strive for respect, they strive for fear. And that's another thing they inflicted with this, with this catastrophe, among other things. And it's 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 interesting this 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 envy this shock and surprise to see the Ukrainians live materially uh, better than they do now. Some people will say, well, of course, Russia has sent many troops from the provinces um, from outside Moscow and St. Petersburg, so you know people from those large cities might not have the the same reaction to the material living standards. Um, but this has a curious echo. I mean, I. You know, anyone watching this channel with any frequency will know that I traveled and lived in, in, in Russia in the 1990s. And this is something I heard over and over. For anybody who traveled to the Baltics during the Soviet period, for anyone from Russia who traveled to West Germany, and we know there were very few because, of course, you had to you had to have connections to be allowed to actually leave the country. Um, but some did travel. And they were kind of shocked and they brought back stories of how the living standards in the vassal states within their empire were actually materially much better off than they were. Um, and that didn't that didn't provoke the thought of how can we live that way? It provoked, even at that stage in the 90s, uh, bitterness and resentment. Um, at that point, the Soviet system, the empire was on its knees and people weren't thinking about resurrecting it, but they were still talking about well, what did the empire do for us when all these other people were were better off. Um, but again, the other thought that occurs is that they didn't also think that, well, these people created those standards for themselves. The immediate reaction of almost every Russian I spoke to was, <clears throat> and this is people who are in in their 30s and above, I mean, uh, you know, younger people didn't really think too much about it, they would immediately say, we gave them everything they had. So rather than looking and trying to understand how have they achieved those living standards, immediately this kind of envious interpretation came in, uh, this slightly sort of bitter uh, and, uh, and, and uh, resentful attitude. And you know, I think people have to understand that that is what's playing out now. The envy, bitterness and resentment um, causes in some part this projection of violence uh, by Russia onto its neighbours. Yes, I, well, I agree with that uh, completely. And as you as you mentioned, it's like, a you could say, a toxic ex. Yeah, when, when the wife left, uh, this husband found, found herself an abusive one, yeah, who was trying to exploit uh, the wife in any any way possible and then she finds herself someone better and builds a this great wonderful life and the per the the husband becomes spiteful and he doesn't want to see this because maybe he still loves her or, or whatever maybe now he hates her because she has built something that he failed to build and it's easier to destroy the her better life than to build his own yeah so i i completely agree with that and um, this, there's something also that you mentioned that I think uh, maybe this entitlement, like we gave them, but more like the state gave them. So the USSR maybe gave too much to the provinces when in fact it wasn't the case, but the people, as you say, in Russia, they would think so because they were waiting for someone to come and give the things to them, to 
build uh, institutions maybe that, that they would provide for that would build the better living standards and so on. They were not thinking about what can I do? How can I proactively uh, make my life better? And that's what we have in Ukraine. And this and this is this is a difference between uh, Ukrainian mentality and Russian mentality. We do have a lot of people who are who have contracted this Soviet syndrome of entitlement that the state is supposed to come and uh, give you everything for free, and no one asks where it comes from. Yeah, for free, this this uh, mythical creature that's called the state is supposed to provide for for you. We have such people still in Ukraine, but most people are they have seen the the Western way of life, because we have been exposed to it, to the way Europe lived. And we have tried to build something similar in Ukraine, and we were taking the initiative. And this is how we, we are different. And then when Russia comes and says, no, wait, you are living the wrong way. Come on, let's let's go back to our family. Yeah, the, this, um, the tight family of USSR. We, we are sick and we don't want that. That's that's like a nightmare for Ukrainians. Yes, it almost makes uh, Russia sound a bit like a cargo cult, if you know that concept, you know, where you repeat a certain behaviour and you expect things to be given to you for free without understanding, you know, their provenance and how they came about. Well, I want to, you know, focus the last uh, part of our conversation on Ukraine. It's only fair. Um Russia gets far too much uh, oxygen and attention, um, and you're involved in the law. And one of the, I think one of the key areas where Ukraine has been able to make progress, and where there is still progress that needs to be made, is in rule of law, is in reform of the ju judiciary, and in creating a level playing field between, say, sort of you know normal businesses and reducing you know the power of of, of oligarch power and influence. So, could you sort of describe your experience of how that progress has been made in creating the foundations of a rule of law society and what progress still needs to be made in terms of judiciary um, and other aspects of the legal system. Oh, there's there's still a long way ahead of us, uh, but we, we think that when we become part of this European, European community, that we will have to introduce uh, the structure similar to theirs and this way we'll be able to fight this corrupt system. And there have been some reforms. Uh, we have some new institutions that that help uh, with the judicial system, but I, I don't feel like there's been enough progress. We have uh, fair courts, but we still have corrupt uh, corrupt uh, judges as well. So there's still a lot a lot to do in this regard. When it comes like, to corruption, I mean, is 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 that confined to a particular group of people or demographics? Is it people who've brought perhaps a Soviet mindset with them, or is it rather a behaviour that is being, you know, inherited from one generation to another? How do you interpret the sort of residual uh, corruption? Well, I think it's both. I think in our in our in our authorities, we still have those old uh, system, the, the old system, and we have the. Uh, the people that have been in power, uh, let's say, let's say in judiciary or in tax authorities, for decades, and so they have they have not changed, and we will just need to demolish it basically. But like like I've said, we will need something in place. Yeah, so we need to get rid of those people. But the problem is that if we get rid of them now, it will all just collapse. Yeah, so we can't do that. We would like to. I would like to see them all gone. But it's it's not possible. It's not practically possible. 
um, uh, again, what, what else you asked? I'm, I'm sorry, I, 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 I forgot about the second part of the question. Um, yeah, so judicial. Uh, and the, yeah, so the other aspect is that, yes, this is something we have inherited from the Soviet Union because uh, people uh, essentially didn't have much ownership and everything was um, was viewed as, as uh, common, right? So if you go to work and there are some things at work and your enterprise that you might need, it was normal for people to bring them over. You couldn't buy them because you didn't have the money or because the, the things were unavailable. So basically the only way to get a lot of things were to not steal them, but I don't know, expropriate them. Just uh, borrow them from your workplace, for example. Yes, and so this has transferred into our lives now. And we have people who live like that for 50 years. And for them, it's hard to change. And um, yeah, so we have many people that they oppose corruption only if they don't, do not participate in it. You know, when there's someone else who is corrupt, they, they strongly oppose to that person and uh, they, they will say that they should be fired and so on. But if they could benefit from it, suddenly corruption becomes um, just uh, this um, just this normal practice. So we have we have both. But luckily, I think the younger generation thinks differently and they, they have not lived in the Soviet Union, so they don't have this mentality of everything being common. And since it's common, then I can take it. Another thought occurs as well is the influence of the oligarchs, which even prior to the full-scale war was incredibly powerful and penetrated all sorts of uh, aspects of society. Do you think these reforms and the weakening of the power of oligarchy uh, in Ukraine has actually accelerated during uh, wartime, during the full-scale war? Yes, uh, in my in my assessment, yes, uh, it, it has accelerated. They, they have less power over what's happening in Ukraine. And it's important to understand that many oligarchs, or maybe those who don't qualify as oligarchs, but large, important businessmen, uh, they were pro-Russian, as we know. Yeah, they had many connections with Russia. And this has now to change, and maybe their assets will also be frozen and, and uh, taken away, seized uh, for, for the needs of the state. So yes, this has to change. And I think that after the war, uh, we will have, so we have this one war now going on with an external enemy, so to speak, but we also have an internal one. And this war has to be fought already, but also after the war, that, that will be our huge task to fight this internal enemy um, because we, we paid a huge price and we have to remember that. And we have to remember that uh, we will be held accountable also to how we transform our country. So this is something now and for the future as well. And I, I guess the, the sort of the two, two more questions here, but let's remain on economics for, for this one. And I think the other thing people fail to understand is that a corrupt system doesn't just exist by accident. It exists because somebody benefits from it. So even if the 99.9% .9 of people uh, are are disadvantaged in a corrupt and nepotistic system. There are enough powerful people who do benefit, who can keep those rules in place. With the rise of, uh, you know, the need to reconstruct uh, Ukraine, that's going to require much tighter 
financial and legal frameworks uh, as a huge influx of money comes in and will indeed, I think, be demanded by uh, those who are investing the money into Ukraine. So that's one tendency where vast amounts of money may force uh, further improvements. Um, Another area is bureaucracy, because along with corruption, intense bureaucracy obviously is a challenge in many countries, but uh, in Ukraine as well. And there is the rise of the tech industry in Ukraine. Ukraine has become one of the you know, probably at the forefront in Europe, along with with uh, with London as being one of the major drivers of tech and innovation in, in Europe. And again, that will bring vast amounts of money. Now, tech doesn't necessarily need lots of um legal framework that comes later what innovation requires is not to be held back by bureaucracy and slowness and so on so do you think the money that's going to be flowing into ukraine and generated in ukraine in future years will actually have quite a powerful impact in reducing corruption nepotism and bureaucracy well yeah that's that's the hope and I think that money that comes into Ukraine, uh, be it from uh, private investors or institutions, uh, they should they should come at the conditions, yes, and transparently that everything goes. Uh, you can you can uh, track them completely, and guarantees from the state and and so on. Yeah, so there has to be accountability. I want money to start flowing into Ukraine. I want Ukraine to be rebuilt, but I want it to be built back better. And so the money doesn't end up somewhere where it shouldn't. And yes, I think digitalization is the way to go. And it's a great thing that we have uh, the support that it's actually, it's being led by the government, by the, first it was the digital transformation uh, ministry. Now we have uh, uh, Mikhail Fedorov, he moved, to, he became a VP for di digital transformation. And so this is, this is also coming from the, uh, from the top yeah and this gives me hope that there won't be this hurdles of uh, like bureaucracies and legal hurdles on the way to implementing the, these uh, digi digi digitalization and um, uh, removing the intermediary removing the bureaucrats sitting there and the bottleneck being the bottleneck essentially so uh, i i see this as a as a huge huge potential for ukraine to improve well, everything, the situation with corruption and uh, building a better investment climate. And the last question uh, will again focus on the post-war situation. I mean, the assumption here is Ukraine's going to win. Um, I think everyone who watches this channel, apart from the trolls, has that strong belief. Um, but not just building back better, but building back in humane fashion, I think is important. And I'd love to hear your views. You know, when the war is finished, and Russia is is vanquished, um, there are going to be tens of thousands, if not more people who have physical trauma. There are going to be many hundreds of thousands, both military and civilian personnel, who have mental trauma. Uh, and in fact, every single Ukrainian is, is, is dealing with uh, you know, levels of stress, which um, are uh, you know alien to peaceful societies whether they've had to go uh, abroad as refugees or whether they've remained in country, there's this, this huge collective trauma. How effective do you think Ukraine and Ukrainians are going to be in dealing humanely with those problems? Well, I think this is something new for us, relatively new, and our cities will have to be rebuilt and they have to be, to be rebuilt to be accessible for people with disabilities. Because if, if you've ever been to Ukraine, 
before, uh, you would notice that we don't have handicapped people anywhere to be seen, right? Because because there are no conditions for them to participate in this everyday life. For, they are mostly just sitting at home. They have no way of accessing um, or anything yes, in our country. So this has to be taken into account. And I've seen uh, some uh, great initiatives, including by our first lady, uh, the accessibility program. So this is being under development. Also, uh, I remember a feedback from some refugees, uh, Ukrainian refugees from Mariupol who went to Warsaw. And the first thing that they mentioned that, that stri strike them um, in, in Warsaw, that everything was, um, that the city was really, it, it like it uh, catered, catered to the needs of people with uh, disabilities. Yeah? So you, they could access everything. They could go anywhere. And so this has to be implemented in Ukraine everywhere uh, because we will have those with physical disabilities. And uh, we do have a stigma in Ukraine um, related to mental illnesses. Uh, we don't consider it normal to get help, mental help or any kind of help for that matter. Ukrainians are raised to be mostly brought up to be uh, self-dependent. <laughs> Asking for help is being found upon. This is this was like a, a huge change, a huge challenge for me to ask for help from strangers uh, and to accept this help. And so we have to work on this. But I can see a lot of programs again underway. I, I know some programs, for example, rehabilitation uh, through uh, working with horses so equine assisted therapy for veterans, for uh, people with the with the PTSD and also uh, such things as horticulture, uh, therapeutic horticulture, and well, painting and other, other therapy, therapies, or even like calligraphy. Yes, so we have those programs in place. Uh, we Again, we have to learn from the world. Uh, we have to implement the best practices worldwide. But I think by, the, by this point, uh, our psychiatrists, our psychologists also have this unique experience. Uh, we can export that to the world as well. So yeah, we have a lot to work on and we have to make our people more sensitive. We have to speak with our kids on how to respond to people with needs, people who are different. We have to help uh, everyone who returns from this war to socialize and be able to lead a normal life. Well, Christine, we've come to the end of the time. It's been a huge pleasure speaking to you. And I think we've covered a lot of topics which uh, we haven't covered anywhere else in the channel. So this is a, you know, a, a, a um, I think a hugely interesting sort of episode. I'm so glad you could share your expertise with us. Um, and uh, I encourage everybody to follow you on LinkedIn and uh, see the really interesting stuff you post and repost. Um, but yep, all I want to say is uh, thank you so much and Slava Ukraine. Thank you for having me. And I hope I brought some value to your listeners and Slava. And yeah, hope soon we'll be able to celebrate our victory, joint victory. <laughs>